0: following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There was a, a woman... At the college that I went to, it's the place that I uh, met my wife, Rebecca. So we went to this college, and there's a, a woman there who was legendary. Now, she wasn't a professor. She wasn't um, one of these people that had written a lot and was famous and going around and, and speaking about certain perspectives. Wasn't, she wasn't a legend because her class was always jam full with students. She wasn't a professor at all. In fact, her job, her name was Barb. And her job was when you came in the dining hall, she was one of the people, there's these lines of students, and she was one of them that the students would walk in, hand her their ID, and she would scan it, hand the ID back, and the student would walk in to get their lunch. She worked the lunch shift, and she'd scan student IDs. And Barb was a legend. Now let me remind you, this job, I mean, it is the most simplistic a monotonous job you can have. There's, there's no computer. You're not entering any data. There's no cash register. You're not uh, exercising your math skills and giving people change. I mean, you're just simply sitting there taking the ID card, scanning it, handing it back. That's all you do. There's no way to improve on this job. Barb never went home. She never mapped out graphs and like five-year goals on what this job can become. It was as simple scanning an ID card and handing it back, but Barb was a legend because Barb decided it would be her goal as she's sitting there to memorize the names of every single student that walked by, and hundreds and hundreds of students, she would know their names. She didn't have to look at their ID. She'd go, oh, hi, Frank. Oh, hey, Matt. Oh, what's up, Travis? How you doing, Roby? Hey, Rebecca. And she'd scan their cars. She knew every single person's name. In fact, recently, Rebecca and I were talking with uh, another person that we knew that graduated from the same college many years before we did. And somehow the conversation came back to Barb. We brought up Barb and she says, I loved Barb. Barb knew my name. She made me seem feel so special. I'm like, Barb knew all of our names. Barb was an absolute Legend. Now, there's part of her situation that many of us can relate to. We can relate to the side of our job that feels so routine, monotonous, and purposeless. Some of us feel like we might be in a rhythm like that in our job. And so when we're studying a character in the Bible like Daniel, or when you stop to study about a great leader, maybe a historic leader, and you're studying about someone great like that, part of it is inspiring, isn't it? It's like, wow, look what God did through them. But part of it, it can also be kind of discouraging. Because we're tempted to think, man, my life is nothing like that guy's life. That guy's living all these incredible adventures, and my life is just so ordinary. In fact, you might be tempted to say, the closest adventure that my life has is that movie Groundhog Day. I feel like I'm living the same day over and over and over and over again and the only adventure about it is survival on the other end of it. Sometimes we feel like that and sometimes we wonder, God, I read about these people in the Bible or I hear about these people. You're doing incredible things and it's inspiring, but what are you doing with me? What's my purpose? Why am I here? Why does this feel like such a long, boring, insignificant season? How am I supposed to operate in a season like this? Well, the story of Daniel also instructs us when it comes to this as well. If you would open in your Bibles, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, if you'd open it to Daniel chapter 5, it's also going to be up here on the screens. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 1. Daniel 5, this takes place in Babylon. Daniel is a, a Jewish man who is in Babylon operating as an advisor to the king, so We're talking about the king of Babylon here. Daniel 5 verse 1. King Belshazzar. Now notice if you've been journeying with us through this series, this is a new king. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them, then they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver bronze iron wood and stone all right if you caught what this was saying you know this is not going to go well for them okay let's just review here belshazzar he's the king of babylon and he throws a party it is a big party He has a thousand nobles there. He has a thousand of the lords of Babylon there. He has all his wives, concubines, the whole court. He has them there, and the wine is flowing. And then Belshazzar says, you know, this is a great party, but you know what would make it even better? You remember way back when my father was ruling, way back when my father was ruling, if we remember when he he conquered that that city Jerusalem and he pillaged their temple and he got all these golden vessels from that temple and he brought them back and put them in in the temples to our idols what if we got those vessels and we drank at this party, out of those vessels, that what would, would make this party awesome? Okay, that would take it to the next level. So they go and they get these vessels. Now, rem, just as a reminder, these are the golden vessels from Solomon's day when they built this temple. A reminder about the temple, the innermost holy part of the temple. I'll give you an idea of how holy the temple is, and all the instruments and furniture in the temple, the holy of holies. No one was allowed in the Holy of Holies except for the high priest. And even he only went in there once a year. If you broke that law, if you weren't the high priest, and if it wasn't that once a year, you'd die. The glory of God just kills you, apparently. That's how holy this is. So you can imagine when they say, Hey, let's go get those vessels that my father desecrated so many years ago. Let's drink from them. This is not going to go well for them. And then the fact that they not only drink from them at their party, disrespecting and blaspheming, then they raise them up to their gods. Okay? This is going to be bad. This all happens with Belshazzar. Now, to put this in perspective, so we kind of understand the timeline here, this is Nebuchadnezzar's son. Nebuchadnezzar, he ruled for over 40 years and Daniel was a young man when he started at the very beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign when he started to serve Nebuchadnezzar. So this is over 40 years later. Daniel may be in his 50s or 60s, okay? He's not a young man. I'm not saying he's an old man. I'm just saying he's not a young man. Okay, that's all I'm saying. He's no longer a young man but he served 40 years for Nebuchadnezzar. That's an entire career, Okay? He served for those 40 years now that we have this guy Belshazzar and we have this guy drinking with the instruments from the temple, the vessels from the temple that his father so many years earlier had stolen. Okay, let's keep going. What happens? Verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared. Huh, that's terrifying. And wrote... On the plaster of the wall, the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. No kidding. And his thoughts alarmed him. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. They're drinking, drinking out of the the vessels from the temple and a hand appeared. Okay, now in my mind, I don't know, I can't decide if in my mind it's a floating hand or if it's like thing from the Adams family that like runs up the wall and starts writing on it. Okay, I don't know which it is. Either way, that's horrifying, okay? It says his color changed. He goes sheet white, okay? His knees start knocking together. His limbs give way. Maybe he just slumps back down on his throne. He yells loudly for all the wise men. You have all these magicians and sorcerers and astrologers. They all come in and he just says, okay, if any of you can tell me what that means, what's written on the wall, I will give you a, a, a purple robe, a gold chain, and make you third over all of the kingdom, Okay? None of them can tell him what it means, and it says his change, his, this coloring changed again, apparently. I don't know what color it is now. It looks like a Smurf or something. I don't know what color. He's that scared. And he says, and none of them can tell him what it means. Now, if you've gone with this through the series with us, you've seen this cycle before, haven't you? Something happens. None of the wise men can interpret what it means. So you can kind of see what's probably going to happen next. Look at verse 10. The queen. Now this is probably, the queen here is not meaning his wives because his wives are already in the banquet. This is probably referring to Nebuchadnezzar, his father's wife, maybe his mother. But it's probably Nebuchadnezzar's wife and that actually helps explain some of the context here. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change. It's really weird. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the Holy Gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because, now watch how she describes him here. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel. Whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you, he will show the interpretation. Briefly, I want you to just see her description. We're going to keep going here. I want the story to unfold, but I just want to pause and, and accentuate. Look at what her description of Daniel is. She's saying, Oh, Belshazzar, there's a guy that your father really trusted. And So maybe he's no longer serving for the king, who knows kind of what that relationship is. But she reminds him there's a guy, and her theology's off. She says, you know, he had the spirit of the gods in him. And we know it's the spirit of God working through him. And she says there's a guy, his name is Daniel, and he had this, she says this phrase, it's going to come up again later in this passage, he had an excellent spirit, a spirit of excellence was in him. And and he says he could interpret dreams, but it shows some of the other things he's been doing. He can solve problems when no one else could see their way out of a difficult situation. Daniel was there able to solve these problems and these puzzles. So look what happens, verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you. That the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Now, I love this. Look at Daniel's response. He always says something so good. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Don't you love, you see kind of a seasoned Daniel here. The king says, oh, I've heard of you. You're that guy that was told me about. My my father really trusted you. He says, none of the other wise men can tell me what that means. But if you do it, I'll do all these things. I'll promote you. I'll, I'll give you a gold chain and this purple robe. Very significant. He says, I'll do all these things for you. And don't you love you? See a very seasoned Daniel. And he just simply says, you can keep it. Give it to someone else. But I will interpret this for you. Now I want to jump down to verse 24. And let's read what this interpretation is. Then from his presence, this is Daniel giving the interpretation. He's talking about God. Then from God's presence, the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mine, mine, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances, and found wanting. Peress, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is really unbelievable from a historical standpoint. Daniel comes in and he says, okay, let me explain to you. Those are four words written up there, mine, mine, tekel, parson. And all of those words are Babylonian monetary terms. It's a mina, a shekel, and a peres, or if the pearl is parson. And he says, though, he says, here's what this means. So that's why they're lumped together, all monetary terms. But each of those monetary terms have actual meanings when they're used as a verb. And the first one, um, mine, 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 is the word numbered. He says, king, your kingdom, the days of your reign have been numbered. And your number is up. It's coming to an end. And if that's not unnerving enough, he then says, and here's the second one, tekel, You have been weighed. He has looked at your life and put them on the scales. He's looked at your actions. He has weighed them, and you've come up short. You have been weighed and found wanting. And then he says, peres, or parson. He says that word means divided. And it's also interesting because the Aramaic form of peres sounds very similar to the Aramaic for Persia. He says, I'm dividing your kingdom, and I'm giving it to the Persians. Now here's what's also interesting about Why did God choose that metaphor of weights and measures and balances? Because, remember, these wise men, they're astrologers. Not like astronomers, like scientists looking at the sky to learn about the sky. Astrologers who look into the sky for omens and supernatural interpretations like fortune tellers. They look and see what the stars are doing and then they think they can predict the future. These are, a lot of them, astrologers are, are these wise men. And in, we now know historically the month that Babylon fell was in our month of October, which was the Babylonian month of Teshrit. And Teshrit is, the astrologers, they would see the constellation in the sky, like the constellation associated with that month was a scale. So God is speaking in language that they will understand. You're like, wait a minute, is God like approving of astrology? Absolutely not. But he's speaking through them in a way, so that because he knows their culture. God is speaking in such a way that when he says, you've been weighed and you've come up short, all the astrologers who know that this is the scale month, their color is changing and they're starting to slowly nod like, okay, that makes sense. And so all the wise men behind Daniel are now starting to get very nervous as God is speaking into them and calling out this judgment. And it says, that very night, that very night, the king was executed and the Persians took over. So here's what happened, literally, what we know historically from Xenophon and Herodotus, the ancient uh, ancient historians, what we know actually happened is they are inside Babylon, the Persians are outside. They're actually, those historians say when the Persians came in, they found them partying. They were so arrogant, they just found them partying. And what happens is the Persians go down to the Euphrates River, they divert part of the Euphrates River so the river goes down, and the Persians walk into Babylon almost w- without even a fight, barely walk into Babylon along the riverbank that's been lowered. And, they, and it was so unexpected, it was so uneventful, there are parts of Babylon that didn't even know the city had fallen. And they walk in and some of the historians say they found there, this young king who was godless and cruel and, and the general of the Persians executed him that night. What's so fascinating from a historical standpoint is ancient historians tell us what happened outside the palace and the Bible tells us what happened inside the palace. God is calling down his judgment and that night the Persians take over and expand their empire to include Babylon. Now I want you to notice something. Did you notice that even though Daniel delivers bad news, Belshazzar, the king, lives up to what he said he'd do, what he said, what he, said he would do? He puts the purple robe on Daniel, puts the gold chain and promotes him to the third in command over all of the kingdom. Do you realize he did that like five minutes before they're conquered? That's probably the last official thing that he did is promote Daniel. Why is that so significant? Let's finish up with these three verses. Look at chapter 6. It pleased Darius, this is the Persian ruler. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one, look at this, to whom these satraps should give an account, look, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because a what? Excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set over him the whole kingdom. All right, let's say you're part of a major corporation, like large corporation. And you buy a smaller corporation, or, or um, maybe it's a division of a corporation because that company is in a region that you want to be in and you're not in yet. So you buy a smaller company. What so often you do is, the, if you can, probably the wisest course of action is to look at the leaders that are already there that you can keep and to keep them in place. Why? They know all the accounts, they know the ins and outs of that region. They know the product. If you can keep those leaders, it's great to keep them. Otherwise, you have to start from scratch and you lose ground. Darius has this same mindset. Did you notice this? He comes in, and he says so that he'd suffer no loss. He doesn't want to skip a beat, so he says, "Okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna set up 120 satraps, and I'm gonna have three people that all of them report to. Who are your leaders? Is it Dan- Daniel's one? Of them? Okay, Daniel, you're one of the, the three satraps. You're gonna be the regional uh regional directors. I'm gonna have some d- district managers. 120 of them. 40 district managers report to each of you. Okay, and Daniel, you're one of the leaders. So he comes in and he gets." the Babylonian leaders, and he puts them in positions of influence. Now, little does he know that Daniel has only been in that role for about five minutes. Are you one of the leaders? Oh, yeah, I'm one of the leaders here. Sure, absolutely, okay? Most people haven't even read the email yet that's in their inboxes that Daniel's been promoted. One of the last things that happens in the the kingdom of Babylon is God positions Daniel to be in a position of influence in the next world superpower called Persia. Isn't that unbelievable? And then you see what happens. Darius sees in Daniel the same exact thing that Nebuchadnezzar sees in Daniel. It's the exact same wording. Did you notice that? Darius sees an excellent spirit, a spirit of excellence. And now he wants to make Daniel over the entire part of the kingdom. It's so helpful through this story as we're trying to study Daniel and how he's operating in these situations. It tells us very overtly the different attributes of Daniel. Remember several weeks ago, we learned about Daniel's resolve. He resolved ahead of time when he found himself in this messy situation in Babylon in a palace. He resolved that he would not defile himself. He knew who his allegiance was to. It was to God. He resolved that. He had resolve. We learn he's praised for his discretion. We learn that he uses wisdom and discretion when he's interacting with people. He's described, we talked about last week, he's described as having great love and grace for people around him, even his enemies. And then in this section, it's describing Daniel as having excellence, excellence, And God always uses that quality of Daniel, that in everything he does, he does it with excellence, and he rises Daniel up to positions of influence, and then Daniel uses that influence for the sake of God's kingdom. Daniel shows excellence. Now, here's the temptation. We see that, and we're like, well, yeah, if I had that job, I'd do my best, meaning if I'm I'm no advisor to kings, okay? I mean, but if I was in that job, of course. I mean, that's, that's an intense job. I mean, every day, man, I don't want to get that right. It could be Millions of people could be, you know, in trouble. Like, I'm going to be at, at the top of my game. You know, if I was on uh, an advisor to a king, of course, I would do that. If I was in some significant position, but I am not in a very significant position. In fact, my life is just dull and boring, and I do the same thing over and over and over again, and I don't know how this matters to anything. But time out for a second. What did we just learn? We just learned that Daniel had a 40-year career with Nebuchadnezzar. And within that 40-year, after he gets out of his, um, his uh, advisor college, okay, and he's, uh, he's serving Nebuchadnezzar for 40 years, how many episodes do we have about Daniel? Two. He interprets two dreams. Okay, that's two exciting weeks that we know of out of 40 Years. Don't you know that there were long stretches where God's like, where uh, Daniel is like saying to God as he's going to work, I don't know why I'm here. You've got me here as this advisor. And I I interpreted that dream one time, but you know, the last, that was 12 years ago. I mean, what's happening today? I'll just do the best I can. Sometimes what happens is we read these stories, we're like, look at that life. I mean, that's a good life. I mean, look at all of the adventure, all the exciting things always happening, but that's not my life. I mean, I wish I had a life like that guy, Moses. I mean, that guy. I mean, he walks into Egypt, he's sending flies in, that turning that into blood, and all of a sudden there's frogs hopping all over everybody. I mean, that guy, I mean, he had, I mean, he's up on Mount Sinai, he's getting tablets from God. I mean, that's an exciting life, right? There. I want an adventure like that. Let's talk about Moses. Let's say that that time in Egypt with the plagues and everything, let's just say that was like nine months, and then we'll tack on another couple months when he was on Mount Sinai. Let's say that was one really, really exciting year. Do you know what he did on either side of that? Forty years wandering in the wilderness. The first 40 years, he gets out of Egypt, he's trained up, like he's been the best colleges and universities in the king's palace. Forty years, and what is he doing? He must have been like, I'm tending sheep I am a shepherd. I'm a shepherd for my father-in-law. It's like, man, I, I can do so much more than this. I feel like I'm wasting my life year after year, decade after decade for 40 years, has one a burning bush experience, an exciting year, and then he ends up on the other side. And you know what he's doing that time? Tending Israelites in the wilderness. And he was probably like, I actually wish I was tending sheep. Okay, this was actually worse. Sheep don't complain as much as these Israelites are complaining. As he's wandering around. Okay, on the either side of that, he is in this monotonous, he's crying out to God, God, what are you doing? See, even in the most, what we see is these most exciting lives, we, we have, we see these pictures of, there's long stretches where you're waiting for what, God, why do you have me here? And you know what we see Daniel did in the meantime? Excellence. He just woke up that day and said god i don't I don't know there 's not been a dream for me to interpret in a long time, so you know what i'll do i 'm just going to do the best I can, give it all that i 've got, and just be excellent say okay, I, I hear you, but man uh, uh, my job's not spiritual like i'm'm not, I'm not doing anything spiritual i 'm not doing anything that adds to anything you know for god i mean i, I make i 'm on an assembly line and I just make widgets all day you know just make these widgets that 's all i do i mean i don 't do anything spiritual can i Can I remind you of what the New Testament says to you in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 23? Here's what Colossians says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. I love how the NIV says, it says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do. Do you know that worship is not just when we come in here and we sing songs and we study the Bible together. Do you know that part of worship, anything in your life that you do to God's glory, anything you do is an act of worship when you do it to the best of your ability for God. You say, yeah, I get that, but you don't understand the obstacles. Man, my My boss is just the worst. I mean, I have no motivation because of this boss that I have. Or I'm in a class and this professor is just, he's terrible. He's a terrible professor. I, I, I'm not going to do my best for that person. Or, you know, there's this policy at work that I just can't stand. Why do they do this? It makes things so much difficult. Or there's this person that I work with and they just take all the joy out of my job. And all these things, you know, I just, I, it would be easier if I just didn't have such a bad working environment. if it it wasn't that I had such a bad boss or a bad leader or whatever it was. But you know what that just says? Work as to the Lord and not men. In other words, work as if God hired you. As if God is your boss. As if at the end of the year, he's doing your annual review. As if he's the one that placed you. Because you know what the reality is? He did and whatever you're doing, work to the Lord and say, God, this is for you. I I am going to be excellent. I'm going to be an excellent student. I'm going to be an excellent employee. I'm going to be an excellent. I'm going to be. I, I want to be as excellent as possible for you. Whatever you do, work with all your heart. You know what's interesting is you know that all of these people that have, were scooped up out of Jerusalem and dropped in Babylon, they had to be asking this question, God, where in the world have you put us? Daniel wasn't the only one. It was a whole group that had been brought from Jerusalem. And you know there was a prophet that God sent to speak just to that generation, Daniel's generation, that found themselves in exile. I want you to hear these words. It's in Jeremiah chapter 29. This is verse four. This is a message to Daniel and his generation, finding themselves in Babylon. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now look at this. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Do you see what Daniel and that whole generation, you've got to believe Daniel had read this. He says, I know you're in Babylon, you know you don't understand, but he says, put down roots where I put you. Don't be like, God, this doesn't make sense. Okay, when's the next thing coming? Because I'm ready for this season to be over. Okay, this is just boring and monotonous and purposeless. Okay, when is the next thing coming? He says, put down roots where I placed you. And then he says work for the welfare of your city. By the way, that's the city that just conquered their country. He says, work for the welfare of this city. Whatever business you're at, work to further that business. Whatever economy you find yourself in, work to further that community and that city and that economy. Wherever you find yourself, work to further that effort. You know that Daniel had to see that and say, okay, here's where I'm at. I'm an advisor. I will make sure this king is the best advised king in history. And I'm going to give it Everything I got, I'm going to give it excellence every day. And God took His excellence and gave Him influence, and and He gave His influence back to God. Don't you know that that's how how it so often happens? When we give our excellence, then He then He allows us to get raised up into influence, and then we take that influence and we offer it back to God, and we say, God, here you've given me this influence. How do you want me to use it? It's like any other resource. It's like in the Old Testament, if they had a flock, at the end of the year, they would thank God for the flock with the new lambs that they have, and they would take the first fruits and offer the lamb up to God, give it to God. If they had a crop, they'd take the first fruits of that crop and they'd offer it. That's what we do with our resources. We offer it up to God, and your influence is a resource to offer to God that we invest in with our excellence. And as we gain influence, we say, okay, God, you gave me this influence. How do you want me to use it? You know what's interesting about Jeremiah 29 is later in that chapter, there's a verse that so many of us, so many hold dear, so many Christians. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. Let me just quote it to you. It's where God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. While we're waiting for whatever that plan is, and thank goodness by plans of a hope and a future, is not, you're going to do exactly everything I dreamed. Thankfully, it's not that, because we always dream too small. And he doesn't listen to that. He has a better dream. And he says, I have a plan that I'm working out, and in the meantime, as you're watching that happen, just give excellence in what you do every single day. Christian, don't you dare read the book of Daniel and say, well, God, you, you placed Daniel to have influence. It's just, I'm different. Sometimes we view Daniel as if it's like God's like, okay, I need someone to advise the king. Okay, who's not doing anything? You, Daniel? Okay, I'll put you there in influence. And the rest of us are like, okay, we'll just be here if you need us. That's not the way it is. Do you realize he has placed you in the spot that you're in with every bit as much intentionality as he placed Daniel in the palace? He has placed you. He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. It, do, I, it doesn't matter how long it's been. It doesn't matter for how long you feel like. How am I going to be? How long am I going to be in this seemingly insignificant season? He says, "Trust me. I am working out a plan that I designed specifically for you. The plan is bigger than you, but it's going to include you. I have a specific plan. So what I need from you is keep your head down and just be excellent in all that you do." as an act of worship back to me, as an act of faith. You know, for some of us, what the struggle is, is it's hard for us to believe that God has a plan. That's the problem. I don't believe you have a plan for me. Maybe it's, God, I just, maybe I was on a plan at the beginning, but I've made so many mistakes in my life that I've gotten off to some plan, and I'll never know what that other plan was. You know, that's just nonsense. Nonsense. He has a plan for you. And part of the chief part of that plan was that he sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to earth to die on a cross, paying for your sins, rose again from the dead on the third day, saying, it is finished, it is paid for. All of your sin is separated from you as far as the east is from the west. You are walking brand new. Your grace is new every single morning. He remembers your sins no more. You're not off on something. He uses, thankfully, he doesn't just use sinless people because there's only one and his name was Jesus. He has a plan and he chooses to use even us sinners because he's washed our sins away by the blood of Jesus. He has a plan for you. And in faith, give every day all that you have, all that you've got to his glory as an act of worship. Maybe the beginning part for you is saying the first step of the plan that you need to respond to is just believing that he's forgiven you. You don't have to keep working to try and earn his favor, earn heaven, earn his love. Just realize he sent Jesus to forgive you, to pour out his grace on you. You are forgiven. Just accept it. Receive it. He's washed you clean. It's not by what you do by what Jesus did. Some of you need to let that loose in your life and maybe for you this morning... The decision is you say, look, I I know that Jesus has saved me, but I want to take that step in obedience and proclaim it through the symbol of baptism because I want a moment to look back on in my life where I remember that just how I am symbolically buried in the water. My past is buried with Jesus and as I raise up from this symbolic watery grave like I have a brand new life, that's what happened uh, with Jesus. He buried my old life. I am walking in a brand new life constantly. And maybe this morning you say you know what today I want to be obedient and make that declaration through baptism I hope that's you but either way let's just take a moment together and just take a moment before God would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning if for some of us maybe the most important way we can respond is just to humbly have a moment of confession before God where we say God I've not been giving you my best. I've been making excuses. I've said, I'm just not interested in the season you've put me in. It's not exciting enough. It's not adventurous enough. It's not interesting enough. And I've lacked faith that you place me here intentionally because of a plan that you have. And so just confess that lack of faith and say, I want to start tomorrow to live with excellence in everything I do. And tell them, but I'm going to need your help, God. For some of you this morning, you're feeling Jesus tug on your heart, and you're saying, you know what, I think today is the day I want to declare my faith through baptism. And maybe for some of you, just surrender to that in this moment. Say, okay, today I'll get baptized. For some of you this morning, you're saying, look, I need need to put my faith in Jesus for the first time. I've been trying to earn His love, but I just need to receive. He's forgiven me once and for all. And if that's you, if that's the decision you need to make today, I want to lead you in a simple prayer right there in your seats. Just right there in this moment, this quiet moment between you and God, I just want you to say, God, in your heart, make these words your words. God, that's me. I I, I need to just receive. I just need to receive the work that you did for me. I need to put my faith in you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did to permanently save me.